Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 12th, 2022. Over the last couple of days, the theme of denial has come up time and time again. Um, yesterday, uh, we did a show with Ken Auletta, who has a new book out uh, on Harvey Weinstein uh, called Hollywood Ending, uh, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence. And we talked about how this culture of silence, both in Hollywood and America, contributed to the fact that Weinstein's crimes continued for many years without him being called to account. Auletta wrote a piece 2002 in the New Yorker about Weinstein suggesting much of his sexual criminality, but it continued for many years. Um, we seem to deny it, or at least Hollywood denied Weinstein was a sexual criminal. Earlier today, I also did a show with Deborah Cadbury, an interesting history, the school that escaped the Nazis, about a very brave teacher, Anna Essinger, who at a German school, which she heroically transported to the UK. She spent some time in the 1930s going around Europe, trying to argue in Sweden and United Kingdom that government should let her school in from Nazi Germany. There was also uh, a culture of denial. Uh, Deborah uh, Cadbury told me that Anna Essinger was very frustrated with the inability or the unwillingness of people to acknowledge the criminality and the potential criminality of the Nazi regime. Denial in Hollywood, denial in a Europe of the 1930s, and we're going to be talking again about denial today with uh, the sociologist um, uh, and social scientist Jared Del Rosso. He has a new book out, Denial, How We Hide, Ignore, and Explain Away Problems. Jared is joining us from uh, Colorado, from Denver, Colorado. Jared, how would you join the dots between the denial of Weinstein's sexual criminality and the general denial in Europe in the 1930s of the extensive criminality of the Nazi regime, people's unwillingness to acknowledge it? Is it just convenient? Well, I think it's, it's, it is convenient. It is convenient not to, to reckon with uh, the distress, distressing truths and realities that we confront in both our everyday lives, our workplaces, in politics, and culture. You know, when you when you think about um, the denial surrounding um, Weinstein's um, uh, sexual assaults of of women in Hollywood, you know that began on one hand in in his workplace in the uh, non disclosures agreement that his um, um, that he used to silence women in the power that he wielded over over um, the, the people below him. Um, and really, there, there was kind of a, a mix of a culture of fear, a culture of silence that permitted at the level of his, his um, of Miramax, I believe it was, um, at the, the level of the production company for these crimes to go on. But that denial kind of spreads outward. And that's what we're talking about when we talk, begin to talk about politics of denial or cultures of denial or broader states of denial. In that, at the level of, say, the media, um, 
you know, turning a blind eye to, to some of these things, or certainly in Weinstein's case, um, you know, he had deep relationships with say the democratic party and the unwillingness of Democrats, um, to distance themselves when some of this was ongoing, when it was, when it was, when it was known, when it was an open secret, but it was not yet reported in the New York times in the way it was, um, a few years back. So you can kind of see these, these dynamics kind of, of denial moving between the everyday interactions that Weinstein was very much having in his workplace into the broader culture at large. What about the more personal front, Jared? Um, when we have a friend who's an alcoholic or a couple who we suspect that the man is beating the woman or people yeah. who are simply self-evidently mismanaging their lives, does it does it cut across the personal your 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 book on denial? Do you address that, or is it are you more focusing on bigger issues like Weinstein or racism yeah. or, or yeah. other issues in society? Yeah, the you know the book really has two parts. The first part focuses on the sort of interpersonal or everyday dynamics of denial. So the ways in which in our everyday lives we go we we go to great lengths to avoid drawing attention to the distressing things we encounter in our everyday life whether that be simply the, the, the everyday embarrassment that we, we, we encounter inevitably because we're human beings living life in real time among other human beings, to the more problematic behavior of, of say, bystanders who've witnessed something on a city street or the excuses and justifications people use when, you know, when they're in the kinds of situations you've just described, Andrew. And then the latter half of the book is when we begin to move into how does denial um, get into workplaces? How does it get into politics? And then how does it come back to our everyday lives to, in the form of, say, the denial of racism, to erase and efface and disguise uh, these these collective, these really harmful, profoundly harmful collective social problems? Well, let's deal on the personal front. Let's sure. take the yeah. example of a friend. We have a friend who we think is a, an alcoholic. Every time we go out for dinner with them, they, they order double cocktails before, then half a bottle of wine, and then a, a cocktail at the end. Um, it, it's much more convenient to avoid it. At what point should we stop denying it, Jared? Yeah. You know, that's a really complex question. and That's why I asked it. Yes, it's wonderful. So, you know, those moments where we're facing, we're facing or we're, we're, we're beginning to kind of perceive some amount of denial in our everyday lives. You know, there's there's the issues of convenience. There's the issue that, that fuels our denials. There's the fear, the fear surrounding, say, embarrassing ourselves, embarrassing the other person by drawing attention to something um, that they'd rather not and we'd rather not talk about and draw attention to. And I think there's also, in many cases, the ambiguity of, you know, even as you frame that question, it was kind of like, we sense that there's a problem. You know, we're beginning to perceive that there's a problem, but we're, we're maybe not yet sure. And we worry, I think, about overstepping, about drawing attention to something and then being profoundly wrong. And I think, you know, when it comes to interpersonal denial, when it comes to the decision about whether to intervene, I've you know, I think that comes down to the context. It comes down to the relationship. It comes down to the perceived harms we're seeing. Um, one of the things I try to reckon with in the conclusion of the book, or what are some of those strategies we can use in order to begin to breach 
denial or, 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 or erode it. And I think simply becoming aware of what is going on, what's happening, what forms of denial am I using? What forms of denial is the other person using? And, and just becoming aware at that level can really help us make decisions about whether or not to break that, that, that silence, break that denial. Jared, do you think we should all think of ourselves in a sense as whistleblowers? After all, in Hollywood, eventually there were some very brave female whistleblowers, journalists and then actresses who, who revealed what Weinstein was really up to. Now he's in jail. Um, I don't exactly know what, I, I don't know what the equivalent of the Nazis are. It became increasingly clear what they were up to. But should we think of ourselves as whistleblowers, both politically, sociologically, and personally, and that we all have, in a sense, a responsibility to blow that whistle when we feel that there's something wrong, something profoundly um, unjust around us or of concern that we need to address? I, I mean, I love that metaphor of thinking of us ourselves as, as whistleblowers at these different levels. And, you know, the decision to blow a whistle is an ex exceedingly fraught one because there are always repercussions for someone who blows a whistle, um, who, who draws attention to the things other people don't want to attend to. And in writing the book, I thought a lot, especially about, about the, the point at which I think many of us encounter forms of groupthink, processes of silencing, um, and denial itself. And that's often in our workplaces. And it doesn't have to be in these most extreme forms. It can be a, around an, an unwillingness to grapple with the, the, the shortcomings of our you know, employer or our, a supervisor or a workplace. But it can also be, indeed, these moments when you know, something is badly going wrong. You know, one of the classic examples of that is, is what happened at the Wells Fargo, what happened at Wells Fargo, where they were kind of nationwide systematically defrauding customers. And it was everyday employees who were trying to bring it to their own attention, trying to bring it to higher ups at Wells Fargo's attention, but eventually bringing it to the media's attention. And so, yeah, I think we have the capacity to bear witness. I think we have the power to, to change the stream of events by you know, speaking out when we're witnessing silencing or group things. Sometimes it's just a matter of you know, kind of building a coalition you know, with others who we who we we think sense the same things are wrong before, you know, blowing that metaphorical whistle, and certainly politically, we may not have the capacity always to affect the culture at large, you know, to 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 change the course of say climate change denial, you know, in in one moment as one individual, but certainly by engaging with the organizations who are who are doing that work, who are trying to draw attention to it, you know, we can amplify you know, forms of acknowledgement, we can amplify the reckoning with these problems. So I, I really do like that metaphor of thinking of ourselves as potential whistleblowers, but that comes with consequences and obligations and responsibilities at each of these levels. You talked about Wells Fargo. You also talk in your book about the scam at Enron. Um, we've done lots of shows about the crypto Meltdown did a show on the crypto queen stole billions of dollars and the author, Jamie Bartlett, went to Africa, talked to some of these people who bought the one coin crypto scam in, 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 in African villages, and these people were still waiting for their money. Isn't the problem with denial that often there's something in it for us? So many of the people in denial, for better or worse, on crypto are people who invested 
their savings. We should feel sorry for them. But on the other hand, don't they have a degree of accountability? We deny conveniently so that we can make a short-term profit. Sure, sure. And, you know, we use denial in all kinds of ways to defend ourselves, to, to protect ourselves from the discomfort of, of drawing attention to things that people would rather not talk about and to protect our, you know, in the workplace, to protect our jobs, to protect our positions, to protect our reputation. And it does cost something to, to, to break that, to, to speak out against groupthink or silences. And that is you know, one of the costs of being the whistleblower in the, in the way that you, you, you framed in the previous question. And certainly we, we, you know, we buy into systems that incentivize us in not always acknowledging, you know, collective problems. I mean, climate change is another example where the, you know, the, the American standard of living is predicated on a huge amount of exploitation of, of the environment. And so to really reckon with that would require not just, you know, a politics of denial, but almost kind of, or excuse me, a politics of acknowledgement, a politics of reckoning, but also kind of um, an everyday reckoning with the way that we exist. Right, a, a certain, we've done a number of shows on, on, on the environment. Um, did one last week with the English environmentalist, George Monbiot talks mm -hmm. about regenesis, feeding the world without devouring the planet. But it does involve, as you suggest, a degree of sacrifice. Uh, Charles Sable was on the show yesterday talking about the same thing. So this stuff doesn't come easy. You talked about politics. Um, one rather encouraging headline, I thought, was today in the New York Times is half of the GOP voters now are ready to leave Trump behind, meaning that they're leaving behind his ideology of denial, particularly in terms of um, the reading or the misreading the lies about the last election. Yeah. Um, how does denial change? So yeah. how do we get the other half of the GOP to acknowledge that Trump is lying about the last election. Yeah, it, it's it's an enduring question, an enduring challenge. And before writing this book, most of my research focused on the politics of torture in the U.S. and the forms of denial. Yeah, and your last book was talking about torture, yeah. how political discourse shapes the debate. Yes, and it could be, it was really easy and for good reason to be very discouraged as the US during the war on terror and the war in Iraq turned to torture, as it voided human rights law in, in executive branch memos that, that really twisted law in really severe and brutal kind of ways. And it could be really discouraging in knowing that none of the political officials were truly held accountable for authorizing torture. Um, some of the people who wrote those legal memoranda received you know, nominations for federal judge positions or at or at or are at prestigious law schools a speechwriter who was deeply involved with the denial of torture as an editorialist with the washington post and it can be discouraging and a lot of that denial still lives in our political who is, is that ignatius ignatius who are you talking about mark mark Thiessen. okay yeah um and so that denial still lives there and yet and yet there are these moments, whether through the power of investigative journalism, the power of human rights investigations, and also the power of voters to begin to shift the politics where you can see 
that we haven't that we haven't excavated denial denial of torture in this case from our political culture and our legal culture we've boxed it in a little bit more we've set some limits to how far we're going to allow it to speak to to reshape law and you know trump as candidate advocated for the use of waterboarding he went farther than any republican you know in that in that position had gone in saying you know we'll use waterboarding and i'm paraphrasing here and even if it doesn't work they deserve it no one had gone that far as to pose waterboarding as a form of retribution and yet he ran up against the the legal kind of limits of his power in the white house he he ran up against the resistance of people in the military lawyers in the military lawyers in the armed forces um, and and the principles of some of his advisors and, and in a sense was indeed boxed in um, when it came to that i don't want to you know generalize from that one case to all cases but if you look for the the the, the, the incremental changes or if you look for the moments where the language shifts a little the denial is a little bit less brazen the denial is a little bit less outspoken you can find those moments of change and it, it requires changes in public opinion changes in voting and kind of the dogged work of of people on the inside the the lawyers who reveal these practices the soldiers who revealed those practices the journalists who publicize them but also the public to stop refusing to believe that torture could not occur in, in these places what about the how we talk, how we particularly we ask questions. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, what mm. we should know about the people we don't know. It's an interesting book, which some people have criticized as almost being an excuse for some of the the sexual scandals and crimes at places like Penn State and the U.S. gymnastics team. Those are still in the headlines. Do you agree with Gladwell's thesis that um, we tend to talk to strangers in a way that make us, I guess, very vulnerable to denial. Mm. You know, there's, there's, so I'm going to come at it from a slightly different angle because there's a long history in sociology of understanding of studying these interactions in public places between strangers, people who don't have this deep social relationship. And what you find is a lot of ritualized behaviors. You find ritual, ritualized behaviors of avoidance. So not getting too deeply involved in, in the, you know, the apparent problems or, or struggles, strangers, people we don't know well are experiencing in public spaces. And this is of course, fueling things like the bystander effect. And we also, there's this, there are these sets of behaviors that just allow us to kind of you know, either through our conversations, but also through our nonverbal behavior, keep ourselves at an arm's length from from just simply getting engaged in in public settings. So, um, I think it's not. Ex I, I want to be clear that that doesn't excuse bystander behavior, but there is a long history of trying to excavate sort of the social psychological factors that contributes it contributes to it, from whether it be the bystander research that came out of the 1960s after the murder of Kitty Genovese or the longer studies of the sociologist Irving Goffman who closely attended to the ways that people in public settings were interacting or in many cases, just simply avoiding interacting. Yeah, and a form of, Goffman was interested of course in society as a stage, as a form of theater. Yes, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so storytelling is very important. We've talked a lot about storytelling when it comes to the environment and a number of shows on that about 
perhaps denial means, uh, or avoiding denial means telling stories in a slightly different way. Uh, you end the book, and you spend quite a lot of the book, um, Jared, talking about race and racism in America and people's denial of this. We've done many, many shows on, on race and racism in America. Lots of people like Justin Guest, who was on the show a couple of months ago, trying to imagine a, a post-racial society. Others, I don't think, believe it. We had Baynard Woods on the show a couple of weeks ago as a book, Inheritance, an autobiography of whiteness in which he believes that race and racism and whiteness pervade every aspect of things. I'm not sure if you're in the Woods camp, but you're certainly closer to it perhaps than I am. So what, at what point, though, does this issue of denial become self-serving, almost inevitable. If you believe, for example, that America is defined by race, which perhaps it is, although not everyone would agree with that, right. then everything that you reject could be interpreted as a form of denial about racism. Sure. Some people might say, well, it's just wrong. I'm not denying anything. Your, 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 your view of reality is incorrect. At what point does reality intervene in, in this uh, conversation, Jared? Yeah, I mean, it's a wonderfully complex question. And one of the things I think about, you know, when I, when I, when I wrote the chapter, there's a, there's a chapter on the denial of racism um, that emerged from, from my teaching on the topic and then certainly was amplified by what we've um, seen play out in, in the U.S. over the last, well, I mean, acutely over the last three or four years. Um, and I, it's hard for me to not be in that sort of woods camp that you described because I only, I don't think we've yet really begun reckoning with things like the history of racism, the history of racial violence, and then the ways in which that has structured contemporary social life. And so, you know, you can look at it one way in terms of the effort to erase teaching on race, racism, the history of racism in the US in, in public schools right now in this country. Um, you know, Florida being the most high profile example but I live, I live just a few miles north of a county where, where this is also happening here in Colorado. And, you know, it's, it's, it's cutting off our ability to understand. It's trying to cut off our ability to understand how history and contemporary society intersect and how the shape and the structure and the, the racial structure and um, of contemporary society is born from the past. So... For me, I, I, I think, you know, we had only really begun to see the discourse begin to shift around 2020 to, 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 to allow in words like systemic racism. You know, Joseph Biden invoked that phrase, which is a social scientific term. And then we see the, the, the backlash to that, the erasure again of it. And so for me, you know, there's so much of reality that we've not yet encountered. Um, and one of, in my own teaching, one of the, the, the topics, the areas of this that I focus on are the racial massacres from about 1898, when there was a, basically a coup 
in Wilmington, North Carolina through the Tulsa massacre of 1921. These are these are almost never taught. I didn't. We, well, to be fair, we, we we've covered a number of books on on these massacres. And that's wonderful. And that's the, wonderful. The lesser well-known ones as well. Yeah, and that's 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 so important because in, in public schools we're not taught it, and by the time we get to college, it's it's just not generally part of most curricula, and then we are unable to understand what the you know just a century ago what these re repercussions both in terms of trauma, economics, space, geography. Um, and you know the, the the pushback against teaching on racism in this country is is in a in part meant to continue to keep that. I mean, denied. I'll just just use that word. Well, it's an interesting conversation, an interesting book by uh, Jared Del Rosso. It's just out this week. Denial: How we hide, ignore, and explain away our problems, both on a personal and a political way. Uh, as Jared says, perhaps we all need to become whistleblowers of one kind or another, which I think makes complete sense, although it takes a lot of work, a lot of commitment. Yeah. <laughs> and as Jared suggested, a degree of sacrifice. Many of us don't want that sacrifice, want to make it. But uh, I think he's absolutely right that we need to rethink that. Uh, Jared, what else are you reading these days in addition to your new book? Sure. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about two books that have bookended the last 12 months for me, and that's uh, Lyanda Lynn Helps book Rooted and Robin Wall Kimmerer's book Braiding Sweetgrass. So far, I mean, on their surface, far from what I do scholarly in terms of the study of denial, both books about our relationship with the non-human world, with animals, with plants, with the environment, with the climate, um, both hope, hopeful books, but also books of loss and despair. And, and for that reason, both books about collective denial, how we've come to, in a sense, forget our dependence on and our relationships with you know other other species both really beautiful really moving books that are beginning to shift my own sense of how to be in the world how to be in space to be in the environment and, and just be outside 